You are listening to Rare Voices, the show that reveals the wisest path to a fulfilled life for patients with rare and orphan disorders. Brought to you by the people of OptimiCare. I'm your host, Donovan Quill. Welcome to the first podcast of Rare Voices. Since you only get one time to have your first show, I wanted to have someone that would make an impact. My first ever guest had quite an impact on me when I first met her. And in this podcast, you will see why. Let me introduce you to Candace Lehrman, or as most people know her, as Rare Candace. So Candace, much like myself, your passion for rare disease space is personal. Can you tell us a little bit about how you became involved in this in this world? Yes. So back on May 1st, 2014, um, I walked into a hospital in South Florida with a platelet count of 7,000. And after a lot of panic from people in the emergency room and some doctors and a paramedic who had to come in and place a port in my wrist, I was diagnosed with a rare autoimmune blood disorder called immune thrombocytopenia, or a much easier way to pronounce it is ITP. And I ultimately spent six days in the hospital. I had countless blood draws, which uh, with a low platelet count resulted in massive bruising and hematomas forming all over my arms, everywhere I was poked. And I left the hospital six days later with a diagnosis of a rare disease, but absolutely no information about what was going to happen to me. And so it was a very difficult situation. I was 27 at the time. Uh, I thought I was extremely healthy. I was working about 65 hours a week um, for a major transportation company. And I thought I was building my life and my future. Unfortunately, my body had other uh, ideas and I was diagnosed with this condition. Uh, And I spent a lot of time struggling with trying to figure out what to do with myself. Uh, After some not so great interactions with four hematologists in my time at this hospital. I ended up at the University of Miami with a great doctor who has since retired named Dr. Yian An. He was a expert at my disease. He knew everything inside and out about platelet disorders. And ultimately he became sort of my mentor through this. So I went through 2014 um, on steroids, which are a terrible thing. And every rare disease patient who's taken steroids is probably nodding their head at the thought of, yes, this is terrible. We call it the devil's Tic Tacs. And I uh, ultimately worked with Dr. On and decided to repurpose a drug for my rare disease. Uh, It was not FDA approved for ITP. Uh, But I had figured out through some research and collecting real world evidence from fellow ITP patients that I had connected with through social media, that this is probably my best shot at having a normal life. Wow. So you mentioned that you were, uh, you know, on a career path and and you were doing something else. So and you've taken charge of, of ITP and you've taken charge of your own health. But one of the things that was was really surprising to me and something that you know i admire most is how has has your rare disease impacted your career path and how has it um allowed you to give back so when i was diagnosed unfortunately after a few months i lost my job at the major transportation company uh and i had to rebuild i knew that i probably couldn't stay in corporate america 
because even though I found a, a treatment that worked for me, every few years, it was kind of assumed I was going to come out of remission and face the same issue again. So I decided to go to law school and I became a lawyer and I decided that my law practice was going to center around working in healthcare and drug development and with patient data. I was super passionate about that. I obviously live in this world um, as a patient and have experienced all kinds of tumultuous issues surrounding regulations and uh, burdensome policies and bureaucratic red tape. So I decided the best way to get involved, give back, and change the way that healthcare operates for patients like myself is to become an attorney and start tackling those issues head on. Yeah, so let's 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 dive into that a little bit and let's look at um, some of the things you've learned over time. While you know, you mentioned the the trials and tribulations that patients go through. You, you mentioned the red tape that folks have to go through. So. Let's look at some of the biggest misconceptions that healthcare has about smaller patient populations and, and rare disease. And can you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. So I think one of the, the challenges in healthcare overall is the system is designed for large chronic illnesses. So perhaps cancer as a whole or diabetes or uh, Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's, things that affect large groups. And so for the United States, a rare disease population is considered a disease that affects 200,000 people or less. And so it may seem like 200,000 is a lot, but when you actually compare it to other more common diseases, it's a very small population. And so the healthcare system wasn't designed to assist people like us. I saw so many physicians who never knew what ITP was, or some admitted to me that it was a five minute lecture with one PowerPoint slide at med school. And I've heard this over and over again from uh, patients with various rare conditions. And I was very fortunate that ITP does seem to get a lot of attention in the rare disease community because it's one of the more populous rare diseases, but it's very, it's still very difficult and it's difficult to navigate. It's difficult to explain to physicians, especially ones who don't feel that patients are an expert at their condition. Uh, so I had to really retrain the way that I interact with physicians. And at the same time, I try to help a lot of other ITP patients face the same. I had a dentist after I was diagnosed who I went to get my teeth cleaned. And he looked at me and said he had absolutely no idea what to do with ITP. So he walked back into his office and brought back a medical encyclopedia to find the page on ITP and read it in front of me before he looked at my teeth. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, and, and, and I think that's uh, it's something interesting you said um, where you had to retrain folks to retrain yourself on how to work with the physicians and work with those folks. So when, when we look at that, what are some of the things that we can do as a whole? And when I say a whole, I mean the, the, the rare disease community and then, then even cut it down shorter than that to the individual um, small patient populations or small uh, groups that you work with. What are the things that we can do better to design that 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 patient journey to help with better outcomes and help with designing programs and things like that? I think for the rare disease community as a whole, awareness of the prevalence of rare diseases is important. We always say that there's 7,000 rare diseases, one in 10 Americans with a rare disease. And so that's a, a massive group of people who uh, are walking around every day. And you may walk by someone with a rare disease on the street and not know it. So 
pushing that message out to healthcare providers and healthcare entities and anyone involved in healthcare. Doesn't matter if they're a physician or perhaps somebody on the administrative side. That's a really important message. And for disease specific populations, the one thing I always stress is working together with like a scientific advisory board or a medical advisory board to put together a standard of care, uh, information, perhaps even just a one pager on the disease, what it causes, what it means, how they treat it. If you can bring something like that to a physician who may not understand your condition and they can look over a sheet of paper and go, oh, okay, so that's what you have. That's what this means. That provides a a great segue into opening the conversation with the provider to have a great dialogue about how to get the most out of your visits with them and get the best care. But it also is a great educational tool as well. Perfect. Yeah, I can't agree more with the uh, having a standard of care and having it be part of the process versus trying to ad hoc um, the things together as you go along. So one of the areas that I know, um, you know, worked for you is, you know, you had your mentor at, at UM and you had the you've you looked at what therapy would work for you. So as we see therapies come together, as we see patient groups come together to work with some of these um product manufacturers to have therapy available for their rare disease or their orphan disease. What are some of the things and what are some of the benefits that you see um, with companies and manufacturers as they develop uh, programs for these patients and products? So I've been a very, a very strong advocate for patients being involved in drug development very early. Um, part of my travels and my journey with my rare disease took me to Capitol Hill. So I worked on the 21st Century Cures Act. Uh, and I stay in regular contact and engagement with lawmakers at the federal level, uh, trying to push the patient voice. And one of the great things that came out of the 21st Century Cures Act was that the pharmaceutical industry has been very open to and starting to implement programs where as they develop a drug, once they get the drug through clinical trial, as they develop patient assistance programs, they're working with advisory boards made of patients and caregivers to try to help patients access the the medication, speak to their doctor about it, pay for it, develop the assistance programs for folks who may be indigent or perhaps their co-pays are too high and they can't get the medication. I've been very impressed with that. But the one thing that I think we have to continue uh, just building upon is the idea of the understanding of the medication, how it works, the side effects to be expected, how patients on the medications can connect with each other. Because I found that when someone is introduced to a new medication, especially if there's a couple different medications on the market for a specific condition, the idea to change or the idea to try something new is heavily influenced by other patients within the community. And that's especially true for rare diseases because we all are connected online. It's very hard to just meet someone in your daily life that has the same condition as you because it's rare. So we turn to social media to connect with other patients and and sort of normalize our experience. And I think industry as a whole has to sort of understand and, and adopt the same sort of social model that the rare disease community has adapted to and thrives in and really bring home that there needs to be an open line of communication about the development of new products. And when new products reach the market, just kind of explaining those to people, because 
if someone has like, say, a negative side effect, they may post in a private Facebook group for a, a particular condition, hey, I took this drug, and I'm having this negative side effect. And just that post without any context or understanding of the drug or the device that's being used may turn a patient off from even trying it to begin with, not understanding that perhaps that side effect or, or issue may only appear for the first one or two weeks while the, the patient uh, becomes acclimated to the therapy. And then after that, they start to see an amazing benefit. And I don't want to see any patient miss out on that amazing benefit because of a fear that they may have with it. And I experienced that in my own rare disease journey when I made the decision for the drug that I used off-label because it was off-label, I was unsure about it. And so I understand the concern. But ultimately, when I dug into the science and I understood what it was going to do for me and how it the benefit was there, it took away the, the in the risk-benefit analysis that I did for myself. I understood that there was a, a way better benefit to come from using the drug than the fear I had from the uncertainty of it. Yeah, so so let's let's piggyback on that. So I, you know, and, and that's the one thing I hear from... Uh, the folks in, in that we do, that we work with every day from in the rare diseases is, is that first initial fear, that first initial um, lack of understanding around their disorder or around the treatment. So when looking at to overcome that fear, what type of real world evidence or health reported outcomes um, can we look to gather as we develop programs and as we develop those things? And what are the best ways to, to promote them going forward? So I think one of the really valuable things from a real world evidence and, and patient reported outcomes as a patient uh, trying a, a drug is to understand all of the side effects uh, that could come from the medication, impacts to your sleeping patterns, your diet and your physical activity, and then being able to quantify that data and present it in a way that's easy to understand for patients. Um, I really like graphs and pie charts. Um, I think a pie chart for me, when I would, when I would analyze medications and try to compare them in terms of, okay, well, which one do I want to take? I like to understand the potential side effects and could they work within my daily life? Cause perhaps, uh, if I always cite, uh, if you have stomach issues, um, I had to try a medication during law school. And unfortunately in law school, the professor, don't really like if you have to go to the bathroom very often. And so I couldn't take anything that would cause me to have to use the restroom maybe more than once during a two and a half hour course. So when I was trying to select a medication, I had to sort of weigh what the impact would be, or if I had to increase water intake and things that could potentially influence my behaviors. Um, and, and I would say, you know, if you're a bus driver or an airline pilot, those situations and occurrences are also a, a factor in selecting medication. But at the same time, too, I also want to know the delivery method. Is it a pill? Is it a shot? Is it an infusion where I'd have to take off a whole day of work and, and coordinate transportation? Um, how much it costs also plays a factor. Uh, and so for me, the, the understanding the, at the very basic level what the side effects are or what adaptations to my life that other, I, other patients are reporting they had to take that I may have to take are the, is the first step. And then also what other considerations are patients reporting that, they, uh, that they're having to adapt to to use a medication. Right. So you, you touched on something there that, you know, and, and, you, and, and that's great for, uh, for our listeners to understand the things that uh, we should be putting together um, for a real world uh, evidence type of uh, program. One of the things you touched on is the cost factor. And I want to I run that out a little bit. 
to look at from the perspective of rare disease and insurance companies, how does the cost factor come into play and how can we overcome that? Obviously in small patient populations, the cost of R and D is great and, you know, and, and manufacturers need to recoup some of that. But when we look at it from a, from a payer perspective and insurance perspective, what are some of the things that we can do to, to show value in that particular product or the particular programs that those patients are enrolled in? Well, I think one of the things for payers, um, and, and it ties into real world evidence to understand the value of, of, a, of a drug that they're going to end up paying for is that it's the patient's quality of life. And so if a patient is suffering from something um, and perhaps they can't exercise and get out of bed or cook or go to work, um, their quality of life is very poor. And perhaps because they're in pain or they have these issues, they're going to have to see more physicians, potentially take more drugs, and they become more expensive and they take up more resources in the healthcare system. So if a drug is developed for a rare disease, and this drug will and normally does address the disease itself uh, and a multitude of symptoms and issues that pre-treatment multiple providers had to weigh in on. There's overall cost savings there for the insurance company. And I think one of the things we miss out on, and and I can say this as an ITP patient, is that my focus is always on my platelet count. And so I want to have that normal platelet count of between 150 to 400,000. That's my goal, as opposed to being at 2,000, which was my lowest documented CBC. But Along with the low platelet count comes a, a multitude of issues. We have depression, so we would need to be seeing uh, mental health professionals and potentially go on medications for that. We have issues with fatigue and pain, so perhaps we would need to see pain management doctors and take opioids. We have issues with our diet, so we have to see a gastro a gastro doctor and potentially have to eat certain foods. Uh, we have issues with joint pain, and we would need to see rheumatology. So we're just adding physician after physician after physician in addition to a hematologist and having to have regular blood draws. So when you have a a drug that addresses the platelet issue and the platelets recover, patients are reporting in the real world evidence and patient reported outcomes data that they're starting to see an improvement in all of these other areas. And a lot of times they don't have to see those physicians anymore uh, and maybe just once a year. And of course, in the age of COVID-19, a lot of times these patients are just having a quick telemedicine visit to check in and then they go about their daily lives. So the quality is there. Uh, but I think the one thing that payers, are, they generally have a very uh, narrow focus on covering a drug. But the truth is, is if you understand the community as a whole and look beyond the disease and start to see the impact in daily life, you actually see a added benefit to covering some of these drugs because they end up eliminating the need for a multitude of other therapies and other regular physician visits. I can't agree more with what you just said. So I, I thank you very much for uh, your perspective on that. So looking at your your breadth of work in the rare disease community, what, what are some of the wins that you're most proud of? I'd say the first thing is the 21st Century Cures Act. Um, that's the gift that keeps on giving. We're still... Um, we're still rolling out rules and regulations and policies and things from that bill. And uh, we are approaching now the idea of a second cures bill on the Hill, uh, which unfortunately has stalled only because of the coronavirus uh, pandemic. But we are actively seeking more legislation and more deregulation and, and cutting through red tape. 
through Congress. Um, another really proud thing is just being able to practice law in, in this space and work with um, healthcare companies and biopharma on a multitude of issues. That's been huge. And just taking my personal experience and everything that's happened to me and being able to provide a voice um, in areas that generally patients don't have a voice in. And that's really in the legal community. So I'm happy to be able to walk into a room and sort of wear two hats uh, and, and be able to provide a perspective um, to my legal colleagues that perhaps they would never be exposed to in their day-to-day activities. Wonderful. So since this show is called Rare Voices, what's one thing that you think is not said enough about our patient, uh, the patient care industry? They never get enough credit for innovation. The patient care industry and patient advocates and everyone involved are very innovative. And they're constantly rethinking uh, different processes that they implement. Uh, They're always looking at red tape and ways to to break it down and rip it apart. and, And they're always looking for a way to improve. And there's a lot of other parts of the pharmaceutical industry and healthcare as a whole that could benefit from the same mentality that patient care has. Thank you. So, you know, as, as we wrap up, how can people learn more about you and, and your advocacy? So I have a, re- a website that I started during my first uh out of ITP. It's rarecandice.com. Um, you can reach me on Twitter at rarecandice also. Um, and I started a grassroots research group for the ITP community. It's the ITP Patient Driven Research Initiative. And we have a Facebook page. Um, we have a Twitter account. And I love reaching out and talking to patients, whether they have ITP or any other rare disease. Uh, and I also sit on the board of an organization called Our Odyssey. And we are a group that is uh, dedicated to connecting young adults with rare and chronic illnesses. Uh, We discuss everything from dating, marriage, family planning, finding a job, going back to school, building a career, and really just trying to uh, develop a social circle of like-minded folks um, like me uh, and many others who are trying to tackle life with a couple extra challenges along the way. Perfect. So I thank you so much for being our first guest on Rare Voices. And like I said, you are an amazing individual and I'm glad to know you and I'm glad to uh, call you a friend. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is wonderful. You've been listening to Rare Voices, brought to you by the people of OptimiCare. If you want to hear more Rare Voices, go to rare-voices.com. There you can learn about our shows, read articles from industry thought leaders, and fill out a form to be a guest on Rare Voices. Again, that's rare-voices.com. I'm Donovan Quill, co-founder of OptimiCare. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to listen for more Rare Voices all around you each and every day. Every day.